It always makes me think, of course, of Haggai 2 and the 24th day of the ninth month, in which God says from that day and forward he will bless. It doesn't say which year. That would make it quite simple. <laughs> he gives a month and a day. So, is this a year? I don't know. I've been watching it for quite a few years. But considering world events and the way things are moving, uh, it very well could be. So, I want to keep a close eye on things. Uh, certainly would be nice to begin to have God's blessings again if we can do our part and He is so gracious as to begin to grant us His face shining upon us again. So hopefully that will transpire. If not, the timing is all God's, so uh, we must have faith, trust, and confidence in Him. He knows exactly what He's doing, <coughs> and we try to sort out what He's doing. So we go to Scripture and we sort out what is there and try to understand the best we can. And thankfully, He's given us His Spirit that we might discern and understand a lot of things that people who do not have that uh, cannot read and un understand because they simply don't have the understanding given to them by God to understand how the Scriptures fit together. Anyway, we came down last time to Isaiah 42, continuing to consider the beginnings of what I believe will be the Philadelphia era of God's church uh, very soon out of the uh, remains of a dying worldwide Sardis and the scattered Laodiceans uh, that we have all been. But God will raise up leadership to provide uh, a door that will not be shut and then shut a door that cannot be opened because those two witnesses will die in the streets of Jerusalem when God shuts the door to their power. But anyway, uh, Isaiah 40 starts the context of that and a voice crying in the wilderness and preparing a way. Last week we saw <coughs> that God is going to do a planting of trees or churches or people in the desert and in the wilderness so that we might all understand and grasp and see together what God is doing. Uh, he mentions two different, I think, individuals here. At least that's uh, the best understanding I have of it. And I want to review that just for a moment. Uh, back in chapter 41, uh, he's stating here that it's time for God to begin to do his marvelous work and to get everyone's attention uh, because he's going to do it. And he says he's raised up a righteous man from the east and called him to his foot and gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings. Uh, so God states here that in this context of the end time, He's going to raise up a righteous man from the east. Uh, obviously, he's from the east, so he's moving. He's going west. Uh, and there, God will put him in charge. And I think that this refers uh, almost undoubtedly to Zerubbabel of Zechariah 4 and of Haggai 2, the end, where God says he'll make him a signet uh, before the nations. And he calls him here a righteous man. So uh, that ties in with Moses being in charge of Israel and what God was doing at that time. And we see that repeated in Malachi 4 and in uh, the Transfiguration 
uh, in Matthew and in Luke. Uh, so uh, I think undoubtedly that's of whom this is speaking. Of course, the story is in Zechariah 4 as well. Now, it appears to me that in chapter 41, verse 25, uh, the context changes, and here's someone else, a different individual that's raised up. He says in verse 25, I have raised up one from the north, so he comes from the north, and he'll come from the rising of the sun or from the east. So both uh, ultimately will come from the east. The first one is mentioned particularly as righteous. This is one who's raised up, who will be from the north, but come from the east. He will also be given power over the princes and so on, but not in charge like the first one was described. And that context goes on to show that there is none in the church that understands, as we saw last week, but he would send one to tell the story of those who will be of the two. So uh, I think there are two different individuals brought out here in Isaiah 41. It starts out with one in chapter 40, uh, giving a message in the wilderness, and then expands it to the ultimate leader. And uh, in this case, with Zerubbabel and Joshua, Zerubbabel is in the place of Moses, and Joshua is the high priest in Zechariah 3. So uh, Joshua is to Zerubbabel as Aaron was to Moses. Moses was the man in charge, and Aaron was the high priest under he who was the lawgiver. So with that background, let's go into chapter 42. Because after the one comes and tells the story of them, uh, then it switches to a story of the leader himself, I believe, in chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect, uh, righteous, elect, different word, in whom my soul delights. So here's someone God delights in. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now, this is obviously a, an overall reference to Christ. I mean, there could be no doubt of that. He's the ultimate leader. But Zerubbabel is a type of Christ, even as Moses was. So it is a story about a physical ministry that God puts on the earth uh, with the final and overall and greatest fulfillment, of course, in Christ. Uh, I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. What will he do? Well, uh, when the role of the end-time ministry increases from just taking care of the church, it says they will preach around the world uh, before the Gentiles and make a judgment on the governments and the peoples of this world who are worshiping Satan. That's the job of the two witnesses, is to show who is God and who is Satan and what is going on. So his spirit will be upon this man. He will bring judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment to truth. Now Christ will come as an avenging warrior in, in, uh, in Revelation, but he is also depicted as coming gently and peaceably and so on. So he has many different roles depending on what has to be done at the moment. His first, the first time he came, it was to live a perfect life, 
without sin, uh, to set an example for us, and to die so that our sins might be forgiven. So he didn't bruise many reeds then, a few Pharisees, but not generally. Certainly wasn't a worldwide thing. Uh, and here, uh, this human leader who depicts Christ will be a milder-mannered, gentle-type person. Now, John the Baptist is not depicted that way, or the Joshua or the uh, Elijah, uh, more of a, a rough-type individual uh, with the, you know, eating locusts and wild honey and leather garments and so on. Uh, but this one is, and speaking with a loud voice, uh, but this one is not indicated to be the same type personality. So you see a difference here in approach. Uh, he shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the coast shall wait for his law. So ultimately you have someone crying about Christ who is to come and then the final ultimate fulfillment, of course, will be Christ coming back and setting his judgment and his government throughout the earth. So the types turn into the reality in the Father and in the Son. Verse 5, Thus says God, the Eternal, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which comes out of it, He that gives breath to the people upon it and the Spirit to them that walk therein. So immediately after showing, I think, human leadership here, which eventually turns into Christ leadership, He declares who He is. Now, you'll see all through this context, over and over, God declares who he is, because the world does not know God. And Ezekiel, as I've said before, put it in a different way, and they shall know that I am the eternal. So, Ezekiel terms it differently, just as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John may have written things differently, but it's the same story. Isaiah puts it this way, uh, that this is the God of creation. Uh, let's understand who God is. Uh, verse 6, I the Eternal have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. So, did Christ not tell his people they needed to be a light on a hill that the world might see? And he says here he's going to hold this man's hand uh, so that he would be a light to the world. And as I've described before from other scriptures, uh, it shows that God's people in the end time are going to be at Zion and Jerusalem and be a light to the world. So, uh, this is a repeat of that. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and to them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. So, those who are spiritually blind to who God is, to what God is doing, uh, this individual is going to begin to open their eyes that they might see. We'll see a little later in chapter 45 that uh, the Cyrus in that context is going to come to see and to understand who God is. He doesn't know right now, but the whole purpose of this whole thing is to show who God is. Uh, they will not repent, the world will not repent, and most will have to die, but they will be given witness as to who the true God is. So that's why this keeps getting repeated over and over. It is the theme of the end-time prophecies. Verse 8 states it again. I am the Eternal. That is my name. 
and my glory will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. So Satan can set himself uh, as the ruler of the world, and God has allowed that at this time, even though Christ has qualified him, but he still is the present ruler of this evil world. But God is going to show that Satan is not truly in charge and will not remain the ruler of this world, but will be bound a thousand years, as Revelation 20 points out. So Satan is not going to receive God's glory. He's going to think he's got the world by the tail, but God is going to send some people out who will have power over the governments of this world via plagues, via death, via whatever, uh, to show who God is, along with his witnesses, who will be in Zion and Jerusalem to be pointed to as the people of God. So he says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So now he says, The former things are come to pass. Now what does that mean? It means that things that have happened in the past are going to be repeated. It's things like Elijah, John the Baptist, the end-time uh, individual who fulfills those positions. Moses uh, will be brought forward, a former thing, and repeated. That's very clear in Malachi 4. So those are things that have happened before. What else? temple was built by David, I mean by Solomon, and then by Herod it was restored. Uh, now the temple is going to be built again. I mean, Herod, Ezra and Nehemiah restored it after the captivity, and Herod kind of dressed it up, but uh, the, the temple has to be built again. So these are former things being repeated. Jerusalem had been destroyed, been taken captive. It was left desolate. It will be rebuilt. So a former thing is going to show up again. And then he says, And new things do I declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So he is going to create new things, but he says, he tells us of them. So somewhere in these scriptures, those new things have to be enumerated, right? He says he's going to bring people back to Zion and to Jerusalem. It has not been done in the same way before where they've been gathered from all over the world. It was done in part when they came back out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem, but not the gathering from everywhere, not a 10% remnant in the same way. So he is going to set those people as a light to the world. Uh, there are many things in the book of Isaiah, in fact, that give us clues about what is going to happen in the near future. So those are the new things that he tells us about. But you have to understand them. So verse 10, Sing to the Eternal a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth, you that go down to the sea and all that is therein, the coasts and the inhabitants thereof. So he says everybody needs to come to understand who God is and sing his praises. Uh, only a few are going to respond, though. We already have seen that in many, many scriptures. Ten percent of what was the church. Verse 11. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice. So he gets more specific here. Uh, the villages that Kedar does inhabit, named for Israel. 
Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. So, uh, God says specifically, a people are going to be on top of the mountains, and they're going to be singing praise to God, and singing to God. Uh, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coast. So, they will stand, as other scriptures show us, in the mountains of Zion, the mountains of Ephraim, Jeremiah 31, and proclaim God. And that proclamation will go out to all the coasts and all the inhabitants of the earth through the witness of two men, basically, with the backing of the people who are in Zion and Jerusalem. It says here, The Eternal shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yes, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. And he will use human instruments to do it, as he has in the past. I have long time held my peace. God has been waiting, waiting, patiently, until the time is right. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a woman in birth. I will destroy and devour at once. So, he'll cry out in that fashion. Uh, We've seen that in quite a few different scriptures, how he will appear that way. Of course, Zechariah uh, 2 tells us he will stand to do his mighty work. I think that's the one. It's mentioned several different places, but he's ready ready to go to work, in other words. And that encourages him to do so. Isaiah 52, even, 51, 52, right through there, talk about a time for God, Christ, to awaken and to do his mighty work. So, many, many scriptures point to the time when he is going to come forth. Uh, At the same time that Satan is establishing his new world order, Christ is going to be setting up opposition to that through his chosen people, and then later he will come and put Satan away and take charge himself. Verse 15, I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all the herbs, and I will make the rivers islands, and I will dry up the pools. So he's going to send drought. Uh, He said through the two witnesses, they can say no rain, and it won't rain on the earth for three and a half years, wherever they say. So who's going to do it? Them? No, it's God and his power that does that. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. People who are deaf and dumb to this whole story. Uh, they may be converted, but they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand God's answers to the dilemma that people who have clung to truth have. They don't know what's next. Uh, most of them, I guess, are still preparing to go to Peter someday. Or they've given up on that idea. Or they don't know. They're confused. But they don't know this story. They don't know it at all. So they will see them in a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. What did it say at the end of chapter 41? It said none of them understands. They don't have any idea that one would come and bring the story. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do to them and not forsake them. Well, God isn't going to give up on anybody. Uh, he's, he's going to take charge And he's going to straighten everything out. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images, anything but the true God. 
that say to the molten images, you are our gods. So he says, hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. So there are many people in spiritual Israel, the church today, who are still deaf and blind. And we'll see in the next couple of verses that even he who is to become the number one leader is in the same condition. Verse 19, he says, All of you deaf and blind, listen, hear. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger that I sent. So he said back here, he's going to send a righteous man from the east, an elect man, and that he would set judgment uh, on the earth and among the Gentiles and so on. But here, he says he's blind and deaf. Who is blind as he that is mature, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but you observe not. Opening the ears, but he hears not. The Eternal is well pleased for his righteousness' sake, says he's a righteous man from the east, says he's God's elect, and describes him as righteous here. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Now that is the position Moses was in. So Malachi 4 and the transfiguration of Matthew and Luke show that the end times of Rebbebel will be in the same position Moses was in. So he is the one who will magnify the law and make it honorable before people again, the law of God, which uh, most people say is done away with at this point. So here's a man who has heard with the ear, but did not comprehend. He's a man who saw with the eye, but did not grasp what he was seeing. So this is a man, a righteous man from the east, who will come, that God will put in charge, but he's heard the story and didn't fully grasp it. He's blind and deaf. So this must be someone who heard, who saw, observed, but didn't really fully get it, and therefore has to be brought up to speed. Essentially a righteous man, and the elect, and the one that God is going to send, but in the, for a period of time, he's blind and deaf. He's a righteous man, so he has to be somebody that will be prominent, right? If he honors and make, brings forth God's law and makes it magnified, then that puts him in a very prominent position. So this isn't talking about just any old person. This is someone very specific, and we know which direction he'll come from. Now back to the people, verse 22. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They're all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are far a prey, and none delivers for a spoil, and none says, Restore. So here he describes Worldwide Church of God and the Laodicean puke that the church has become. And... They're spoiled, they're rotted, they're robbed of understanding, they're in confusion, and no one knows what to do. No one knows how to restore. <coughs> but God will give to Zerubbabel and Joshua that knowledge and that understanding, and then he will stir the people to come 
and start restoring, to heal the breach, to make restitution, to make re reconciliation. Uh, all that will be done. But in the meantime, it's not being done while the ultimate leader is blind and deaf to what's going on, and the rest of the people are as well. Who among you will give ear to this? Who's going to listen? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who's going to listen to the story that the Scripture lays out here that nobody understands? How many do you think will listen? Not very many. That's what God's saying. <coughs> Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Eternal, he against whom we have sinned, so who did, what did God do to spiritual Jacob, spiritual Israel, the church? He gave it for a spoil, a spoil of Babylon. They're out in the middle of it. Uh, Satan has spoiled it, wrecked it, ruined it. Uh, they divided among themselves. So robbed and spoiled, snared in holes, uh, in prisons to some degree of Satan's in their own making because they do not repent and get rid of their self-righteousness and lackadaisical approach and find God. Only 10% will. 90% will go into the tribulation. I think that's pretty clear from a lot of scriptures and from Revelation 3. They would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient to his law. <clears throat> Therefore he has poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it <coughs> set him on fire round about, yet he knew not, and it turned, it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. So we have all these splinters from the truth of God who are out there who have still retained a certain amount of, and some of them quite a bit of, the truth of God, and they think that what they have in their particular organization is okay. So they don't understand what God has done. They don't understand what he is about to do. And God is reiterating that here. And he is going to pour his anger out in the tribulation upon 90% of those who knew the truth and didn't do what they should with it. That could include you and me, or we could repent and grow and overcome and be included in those who come together under the true leadership, <clears throat> who know the story. We have a leg up, but then to whom much is given, much is required. Um, but it is basically our job here to present this story, to cry it out, to let it be known. It's there, it's out there on the worldwide Internet, if anybody wants to hear it. Well, let's go on to 43, then. <coughs> But now thus says the Eternal that created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel, fear not. So he's speaking to his remnant church here, not to fear. He tells them the same thing at the end of Zephaniah 2. Don't fear. He tells us in Isaiah 7 and 8, not to fear the new world order, the conspiracy that is coming, but to fear him. So he reiterates it here in this end time context <clears throat> when the leadership is about to come forth and as, as uh, Israel is about to be destroyed before the beast's power. So he says, Don't fear when this time comes. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. So he has called us. 
individually. Uh, he's named the spiritual Israel. He's named the spiritual Jacob. <coughs> and he says, we're his. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. So, like they walked through the Jordan, like they walked through the Red Sea, he says, I'll be there. Uh, you will be protected. Don't fear. Don't worry. So, the former things will be repeated, as we read a little earlier. These are things that have happened in the past that are going to come again. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Well, is that a former thing? How about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and some of the things they went through? What about some of the things the apostles went through? Uh, John the Baptist might not have been put, I mean, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle might not have been put in the fire, but he apparently was put in a, a barrel of oil on the fire and dipped in oil, burning oil. He wasn't burned. <clears throat> so those things will happen again. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you. It says of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation that if any would hurt them or harm them, the fire would come out of their mouth and destroy them. So does that fit here or not? God will not allow them to be hurt or harmed. Neither will he allow those in the place of safety in Zion be hurt or harmed. So this is a former thing that is going to be repeated. For I am the eternal your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Mitzrayim for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for you. So what did he do? He ransomed them from the land of Mitzrayim, took them through the Red Sea, and gave them a chance in the desert, which they quickly blew, and had to die there, and their kids went into the Promised Land. Um, and many in the Worldwide Church of God today uh, are blowing it, and will go into the Tribulation and die there, but Zechariah indicates that perhaps 30% of them will be saved out of Tribulation. I don't mean physically, but spiritually. That they'll repent during Tribulation, even though they may lose their physical lives, they would gain their spiritual lives. <coughs> Verse 4, Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honorable, and I have loved you. So, he is going to protect a people who are honorable, that have caused God's love to be uh, turned toward them because of their attitudes. Uh, God has amazing grace that he is extending, but it's a little easier for him to extend grace and forgiveness if people have right attitudes. Therefore will I give men for you and people for your life just as he did when he delivered ancient Israel many, many times and had many peoples destroyed that Israel might be saved. Uh, speak of Gideon and the Assyrian army, for one, that uh, was destroyed that God's people might be saved. So he reiterates then, verse 5, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. It's the gathering spoken of in Haggai, where he will bring his people together. Uh, these are people who he says don't fear. Those who are in the tribulation better fear. Those who are not God's people and don't recognize the true God had better fear. So this is, can only be speaking of the remnant people 
whom God says he will protect in a place of safety, and they're the ones that shouldn't fear. So they're the only ones on earth who instructed not to fear. Everybody else had better fear. <coughs> so it's the gathering, the remnant, that is told not to fear. Even everyone that is called by my name, by his authority. So that has to be converted people who know God's truth and that he is selected and called by name. No man can come, none, except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So these have to be people here who God has called and recognizes them as following his name. So that has to be the true church. For I have created him for my glory. Well, they're to be a light to the world, and they're the ones who are to be glorified when Christ returns. 144,000 first fruits. That's all this could be referring to, and not even all of the first fruits, because many of them were in the early New Testament church, some are from the Old Testament. So this end time prophecy only has to be that portion of them that are still alive at the end time so that they could fear. But he says, don't, because I've called you. <clears throat> uh, verse 8, bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. So the, the church as a whole is out there, and they're blind to what God is really going to do and how he's going to solve the problems that the church has, that the called out ones have. So he says, make this message known to them that they might see and hear. And 10% of them are going to respond positively. 90% will not. But, hey, you can lead a horse to water. Verse 9, let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. He's going to just said he's going to gather them from north, south, east, and west. Let them come together. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? How many of them understand these prophecies that we're discussing about these former things and how they're going to be repeated here in the end. I don't know of anyone who understands this other than a very small group of people. He says only one will understand and preach it. That's it. No more than that. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is truth. So he says... I'm going to give this message out and either present a better understanding, present a better story, or shut up and say it's true. One or the other. Then he says, verse 10, You are my witnesses, says the Eternal, and my servant whom I have chosen. So he's chosen a leader, an elect righteous man from the East, uh, who will sit in Moses' seat, who will magnify the law, who is temporarily blind and deaf to the message that is coming out of Isaiah 40 on through and the rest of the scriptures. Even though he's heard them, he didn't comprehend. Uh, but he says, you are my witnesses. Who is he speaking to here? The people who know the truth. The people that he's called out. So it's not just two here. It's not limited. He's speaking here to the people who have understood and that they are set to be set forth as witnesses that God is God. 
a light on a hill that the world might see, on Mount Zion, on the hill of Jerusalem, God's holy hill. They are to go there, and they are to be witnesses that God is God. That you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Even they do not fully grasp the power and the magnitude and the greatness of God. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Eternal, and beside me there is no Savior. So he says this in different ways over and over and over again. I am going to make it known who I am. (laughs) I have declared and have saved. Who is he saving? Those who will obey him. No one else. And I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore you are my witness, says the Eternal, that I am God. So he's showing this story to a people who have no strange God among them. They are people who have gotten rid of idols. They have even gotten rid of the idol of self by sublimating self and carnal, selfish, greedy, human uh, appetites to God who have turned their lives over and committed themselves to Him and His law and His ways so that they have no strange gods, even the God of self. We have to put God ahead of ourselves. Isn't that clear? We're to love God above everything, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. So those are the people he's looking for as witnesses that he is God. Who else? Who else can witness that he's God? If you don't really know him, you can't witness who he is. Most people on this earth have no clue who God is, the true God. They worship they know not what, just like the Pharisees did. Verse 13, Yes, before the day uh, before the day was, was I and he. Before he ever created the day and night in Genesis 1, uh, there was the Father and he who became the Son. I am he. <laughs> and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work. And who will allow it, let it, or turn it back, is what the Hebrew says. Turn it back. I'm going to do it. Who can turn it back? Who can stand against God and what he's about to do? Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer. So only those who are in the position of being redeemed from this world through the calling of God or the indwelling of his Spirit are the ones being redeemed. The Holy One of Israel... For your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. So God is going to destroy modern Babylon for our sake. Modern Babylon will take us captive. They will put us in FEMA camps. They will put us in prisons. They will put us in the ground. Uh, They will put us anywhere but a place of safety to be taken care of by God. So it is for our sake, for those who will obey God and serve him, that he is going to destroy Babylon. Just a few chapters over, he talks about the destruction of Babylon, in fact, but he, he foresees it here. He states it before it actually comes about. That we're not to fear that Babylon will be destroyed 
before us. And what does he say in Revelation 18? He says, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. So he tells us in Micah 4 to come out of the cities, out of the midst of Babylon, and go dwell in the wilderness. And he says that the story is going to be told right here in Isaiah 40 onward in the wilderness. And that's where people are to come if they are to be protected from the plagues of Babylon. So it's not anyone else he's saving. It's those who will be righteous and follow his ways. I am the Eternal, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Who's he going to be king over? The first fruits. Ultimately the whole world, but it's going to start with Christ and his bride, his Queen, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thus says the Eternal, which makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. Did he do that as a former thing? Again, Red Sea, Jordan. Which brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. So, uh, Mitzrayim brought forth the chariot, Pharaoh, the army, and they were drowned in the sea. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise, they are extinct, they are quenched as tow. So he refers to the deliverance at the Red Sea, to the deliverance from Babylon. I will destroy Babylon, and I'm going to save you just like I did then. Well, what does Revelation 12 tell us? When Satan is cast down, he is going to send a flood, an army in type, against the woman, the church, and she will flee to her place in the wilderness. And God will wipe out the flood or the army that follows her. So just like he took care of Pharaoh, he will take care of the army that the Assyrian sends. Verse 18, Remember you not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. It's not going to be just like it was. It's going to be deliverance, but it's going to be a different situation. It'll be a new way of doing what God has done in the past. Shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So a way, a place of safety will be in the wilderness. And he will make sure we thrive there, whether it be rivers of living water, the Word of God, or whether it be physical waters, and I suspect from putting the story together it will be both. <clears throat> the beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters into the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. So ultimately, obviously, the highest form is the Word of God, the living Christ. But physical waters as well. Doesn't it describe ancient Jerusalem as having a former and a hinder sea, water on both sides? Uh, yes, it does. Well, the, the area that I believe was the original Jerusalem has lake basins on the front and on the back. They're dry right now. But when he restores Jerusalem and the temple is built in the end time there in Ezekiel, doesn't it show water coming out from the right side or the of the, of the temple to water, well, what's it going to fill? Those lake basins. So there'll be literal physical water in the desert as well as God's Word. So both the spiritual and the physical fulfillment. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Well, who has he formed? Those that he's called out here in the end time. And then... After, out of the many called, he will choose a few. Ten percent, he shows in other scriptures. 
So those are the ones that he's formed for himself, and they're the ones who will be at Jerusalem and Zion showing forth his praise. <clears throat> but you uh, have not called upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the small cattle of your burnt offerings, neither have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with an offering, nor wearied you with incense. So he said, he's saying here, you haven't had to have physical incense. You haven't had to have uh, those physical things uh, of the Old Testament, animal sacrifices and so on, but the incense of your prayer, your attention, your devotion, your commitment have been missing. You've been lazy. You've been Laodicean, lukewarm. You've not worshipped me with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. So he says, you know, I formed you. I'm going to protect those who will fear me and who will respond, but the rest are going into tribulation. <clears throat> You've bought me no sweet cane with money. Uh, that is not speaking of sugar cane. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's talking about the shoulder that was given to the priests, apparently. And uh, that was part of the animal sacrifice. In other words, you haven't brought those things uh, to me that I told you in the past, or even the spiritual ones of the New Testament. But this is Old Testament referring to the things that God does like. Even the Old Testament says that... Uh, he was not impressed with burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's not what he really wanted. He wanted the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. He says it in the New Testament, and he even says it in the Old Testament, at a time when they were doing animal sacrifices, but that isn't what he really wanted. He wanted their hearts. It's always been the case. From Adam and Eve on down, God, the only thing he's ever wanted is our heart, our whole heart. So simple, and yet so hard to fulfill. Uh, so you haven't filled me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have made me to serve with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. That's the problem. <laughs> we haven't taken our heart to him, but we've presented our sins before him day in and day out. I, even I, am he that blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. He says, I'm weary of them, I'm tired of sin, I hate sin, but through my Son, I'm going to forgive you of your sins for my own sake. What, is, what does that mean, for his own sake? Does he need us? No, he doesn't need us. He and his Son have lived with the holy angels for a long, long time in peace and joy and happiness and in the fruit of the Spirit of God. But he is a God who wants to share. He wants to expand his family and make it bigger, like a young couple gets married and they want to expand their family before long and have children. It's a natural, normal desire. It isn't always advisable here at the end time. He says, you might better at some point think about it, because woe to him that gives soccer is present in the day of the flight. So there is a time when you consider don't expand your physical family, but normally speaking, in normal times, it is a good thing to do. And God wants to expand his family, not because he needs us, but because he wants us. There's a huge difference there. So he says he will forgive. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Again, he's speaking of the church here. He has to be as an end-time prophecy. 
because only those who have committed their lives to him and repented and been baptized have been forgiven. So he says, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Let's both work on this project. I'll plead with you, which he's doing here. And he asks us to plead with him. That his forgiveness and mercy be given, like the publican who's bowed his head and said, forgive me, a sinner. Not like the Pharisee who lifted his head and said, I am not a sinner. Uh, one is a Laodicean attitude. The other is a humble approach to God saying, yeah, I know what I am. Forgive me. So let's plead together for righteousness' sake. Declare you that they may be justified. So he says, let this word go out. That we plead. That we ask God. What did he say in Matthew 24 again? Pray that you be accounted worthy to escape. Accounted worthy. None of us will be worthy, but it's how God accounts us that is important. Whether God accounts us forgiven of our sins. Because without forgiveness, we cannot be saved. So he says, put me in remembrance. Let's plead together. And then he throws it right back at us in verse 27. Your first father has sinned, and your teachers have transgressed against me. So who was the first one that God sent, uh, not as a padre, not as a father, uh, as the Catholics would say, uh, but one who was sent to preach God's truth and to call many people? That would have been Herbert Armstrong. Uh, he wasn't perfect. He sinned. Uh, his teachers transgressed against God. They didn't teach all truth, and they also uh, lapsed into Laodiceanism and different forms of rebellion against God and against the leader that he had put in charge. So there was a certain amount of sin there. God says, I was somewhat displeased, and then the heathen came in, and I became sorely displeased there in Zechariah 1. So uh, Herbert Armstrong was not perfect, neither was the ministry under him. Verse 28, Therefore have I profaned the princes of the sanctuary, and have given Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches, scattered the church. All tables were filthy, Malachi 1. The ministry uh, had become filthy. It needed to be cleaned up. So uh, he scattered it, ministry and people. And he says it's come to the point they have no leader. Isaiah 51, I think, is, says that, that uh, no man among them, no one of the young men can lead them, and so on. We'll get to that. But he has pointed two to do the job. So he has profaned the church, spewed it out, as Revelation 3 says. Different way of saying the same thing. Now let's continue. We're moving along here into chapter 44. Yeah, and he says, despite this, despite what has happened, despite the scattering of true believers, yet now here, so he says, in spite of where you find yourselves, scattered, splintered, destroyed, spewed, listen anyway. O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. So he's speaking here not only of those who have been called, but those who have been, and been chosen to carry forth. Thus says the Eternal that made you and formed you from the womb, which will help you, 
Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun is just another name for Israel. So here are two spiritual Israelites that have been called end-time prophecy, end-time calling. It's not talking about history. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your seed, and my blessing upon your offspring. So these are people whom he is calling now, who will be glorified when Christ returns, and then in the millennium, their seed, their offspring, are going to be blessed. Or if their seed and offspring is either dead in the past or dies in tribulation, uh, they'll come up in the great white throne judgment, and they will be taken care of. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. So even as willows and grass spring up, you've seen it in the desert, it can be as bare and bone dry as anything. We were looking the other day at the Colorado River down just below Lake Mead and Hoover Dam, and hardly a blade of grass to be seen. But right down, right beside the river, willows and grass spring up. So where God provides water, be it spiritual or physical, then these things spring up. So he's going to do it, uh, both physically and spiritually. And he says our offspring, our children, will spring up in that way. Well, if they're dead in the grave, uh, they'll spring up like willows along the water and have a chance at salvation that they may not have had in this life. Most of us haven't had our children called in this age. But he said here it will happen. <clears throat> One shall say, I am the Eternals, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand to the Eternal and surname himself by the name of Israel. My children, most of your children, today don't really grasp or understand. And God is not now calling them. But when they come up, if they live through into the millennium or they come up in the great white throne judgment, they're going to begin to say, oh, God's ruling now. Christ is ruling now. I think I want my name not to be Anderson anymore. I want it to be Jacob or Israel or Godly, uh, some form of the name of God who is in charge. Let's talk about a whole different world our offspring and our children are going to come up in. Thus says the Eternal, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Alpha and the Omega. So he is going to deal with us first. He's going to deal with our offspring and our children last and the people of the world that have lived from Adam on down. Beside me, there is no God. Now, who could do this? Can the scientists raise up our children from the past? I don't think so. And who is I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people? Who did he appoint? Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're all listed in Hebrews 11 as being part of the first fruits. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show to them. So, he's even going to resurrect people from the past, the ancient ones, and bring them forward. Hebrews 11 shows that. 
So he tells us who are here at the end time, if I'm going to resurrect all those ancient ones and I'm going to take care of your children, uh, why are you fearing? <laughs> Fear you not, neither be afraid. Have not I told you from that time, and have I declared it? You're even my witnesses. He says it for the third time here in this context. Those of you whom I have called, open your eyes and hear and see. You're my witnesses that I am God. So don't fear. He's going to take care of his witnesses, isn't he? Is there a God beside me? Yes, there is no God. I know not any. So if he says, I'll protect you, I'll take care of you, then who are you to fear? Do you have trust? Do you have faith? Do you really believe that he's going to do the things that he's saying here? Don't fear the conspiracy. Fear God. Verse 9, They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. Here we have in our country greater riches and wealth and so on physically than any nation in the past has ever known. And it will mean nothing. It will become profitable for nothing. It will all be taken away. Why does he tell us, don't lay up on this earth things for you. Lay them up for the future. That's what's important, not now. Lay up treasure in heaven, not on the earth. Uh, Verse 9, They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. <clears throat> they see not, nor know, <clears throat> that they may be ashamed. All they can witness of is themselves. They don't know the true God, and anything they do is going to be brought to nothing. So, well, what are you worried about? They're the ones that got to worry. They don't know anything. they got nothing eternal or godly or important to witness to. What do you got? A Honda in the driveway and a pile of lumber made into a house? Maybe a bank account that's about to be taken away from you? Uh, what does that witness? What does that profit? What good is that? It's all going to go away. They'll be ashamed together. Well, let's see. Uh, profit's nothing. Verse 11. Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. When all of this is taken away, they're going to be in great fear, and they're going to be very ashamed of the materiality and the selfishness that they have lived. This nation is going to be devastated. Back earlier it talked about those who are doing God's work to be of good courage and to help each other and encourage each other back in 41, verse 6, 7, 8, through there. But here he's saying that those who have been laboring on anything else are going to be ashamed. Uh, verse 12, The smith with the tongs both works in the coals and fashions it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. Yes, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water in his strength. So all that they've worked for, all that they've built, all that they've manufactured is going to be taken away. And without water and food, what have they got? Time is coming where if you aren't fed of God and taken care of God, you'll die. Isn't that the way it was in the wilderness with Moses and Israel? There wasn't manna and there wasn't water. They would have died. 
same with this nation, modern Israel. He hewed him down cedars and takes the cypress and the oak, which he strengthens for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants in an ash, and, and the rain does nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. So he can make gods of wood, he can make gods of iron and gold or whatever. And uh, then, when you have nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and no way to be warm, you're going to cut your god up and burn it to keep stay warm. That's how much it helps you. And how long does that god last? Well, fire takes care of a piece of wood pretty fast. Then what do you got? Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself, yea, he kindles it and bakes bread. Yea, he makes a god and worships it, he makes it a graven image and falls down thereto. He burns part thereof in the fire, with part thereof he eats flesh, he roasts roast, roast and is satisfied. Yea, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. I built a fire. But then is god of wood whether it be a house, or his god of metal, whether it be a car, or whatever it might be that he built and worshipped, will be gone. And the residue thereof, he makes a god. So, maybe he worships the ashes. Maybe he worships the twisted, twisted metal, whatever. Uh, he falls down to it and worships it and prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Are we, as a nation, dependent upon materiality today to save us? Is it our IRA? Is it our bank account? Is it our bonds? Is it our retirement fund? Is it the farm? What do we depend upon to save us when all of that stuff is going to go away? And their God cannot deliver them. Verse 18, They have not known nor understood... For he has shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. What did Christ say? I speak to you in parables, so you can't see, you can't hear, and you'll be taken and snared and deceived. Or Isaiah 28, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, so that you might not understand. So he says, I've taken their understanding away. Well, if he gave them understanding, they would rebel anyway, and he would have to destroy them eternally. So he's taken understanding away from this world. They don't grasp it, and therefore he can show mercy and give them understanding in the millennium or great white throne judgment when they will have been humbled by pain, suffering, and death, and then they'll be willing to listen. So, for right now, they're false gods, materiality, all the things that we worship in our society today will be taken away. Uh, none considers in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire, yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof, I have roasted flesh and eaten it, and shall I make the residue therefore an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? So he says, what do I do? Uh, am I going to worship that is left from what I had? It'll all be gone. It'll all be burned up. Is it worth worshiping? <laughs> he said, you know, what good has it done you? What good is it going to do you? 
He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? He won't know up from down, in from out, or what, whether what he's got in his right hand is a lie or not. He feeds on ashes. We are a nation that is going down beyond the third world to bear subsistence and 90% will be killed or die. So, those who worship false gods and anyone but the true God have a witness before them. You are my witnesses, he says. You who know the truth now who are not deceived, you are my witnesses that I am God. We've got to live up to that, brethren. That's our job, is to live up to being a witness for God. That's a tall order and a heavy responsibility. So then he turns and talks to us again, after describing what the world is going to go through. Verse 21, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, I have formed you. He says, Remember these that are out there in this world, worshiping materiality and whatever God they dream up. Remember me, and remember these, and what they've done, and what it's led to, to ashes and nothingness. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. Who are his servants? Those who are seeking and serving him. Therefore, uh, you shall not be forgotten of me. He says, you who will turn to me, you who will be my servants, I won't forget you. I have brought it out as a thick cloud your transgressions, and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So out of this scattering, out of this mess, out of this spewing of the church, those who will turn to him are going to have their sins forgiven, their transgressions blotted out, and will be redeemed from this earth. It will be first fruits and the first resurrection. That's the only ones. These are the first fruits redeemed from the earth, Revelation 14.7. Seeing, O you heavens, for the eternal has done it. Do we do it for ourselves? No, all we can do is devote ourselves to God and pray that we be accounted worthy and that his mercy be extended and our sins be forgiven. Only God can do it. We can't save ourselves. Shout, you tower, or you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into sing, singing, you mountains, O forest. He's going to plant trees in the wilderness. Remember chapter 41, seven different types, seven churches in the wilderness will become a forest. And every tree therein, the individuals in the forest. For the Eternal has redeemed you, Jacob, and glorified himself in Israel. So he's going to redeem us from the earth. Call us out of the world. Save us from Babylon. He's going to destroy Babylon for our sake. We already read that. Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer, and he that formed you from the womb, I am the Eternal that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spread abroad the earth by myself. I'm the one who did this. You didn't help me. Nobody helped me. I did it. That frustrates the tokens of the liars and makes diviners mad. People who are... Looking to the wizards that peep and mutter and so on, he tells us there in Isaiah 8, I think it is, not to look to those that peep and mutter and the, the sorcerers and so on. Um, the things that, the ones that try to tell you the future. 
that don't understand this word. Don't listen to them. That turn wise men backward and make their knowledge foolish. God is capable of doing those things. Verse 26, that confirms the word of his servant. So he's going to send a servant. We already read that. He's going to send someone else, both from the east. And they're going to tell a story that this Bible gives out. And he says, he will confirm the words that are preached from this Bible. These prophecies will be confirmed. And performs the counsel of his messengers. So he's sending a message out, and God is going to confirm that that message is true. That says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah you shall be built. And I will raise up the decayed places thereof. So we've seen many scriptures that indicate Jerusalem is desolate for many generations, that Zion is not known, and that God is going to raise up the cities of Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah 58, uh, Jeremiah 9, Isaiah 61, I think. Many, many places that the prophecies of Jerusalem being desolate and the cities of Judah being desolate are named. And he tells us in Isaiah 58 that those who will fast with the right attitude and serve God and give to others are the ones who are going to be the repairers of the breach. So those decayed places, that reconciliation, are going to be done through the two witnesses and those and that remnant who comes to them. So this word, this message, this story that we're reading here in Isaiah, God is going to confirm. That says to the deep, be dry, and we'll dry up your rivers. So God is the one who has spoken in the past and dried up the Red Sea. He's dried up the Jordan. He's told us any rivers that come upon us in the future here in this context, he will take care of. And we'll go through the fire and through the water and not be harmed. So it's the same God that says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. So he's going to bring this message out and show it by his messenger who cries in the wilderness, Isaiah 40 on, that this story is going to be told that is in these scriptures. And then there is a Cyrus, whom we're going to see in the context, who does not know God, who is also going to say, and he is going, that says of Cyrus, here's what God says about Cyrus, he is my shepherd. So here's someone that we're going to see in the context does not know God, but he has a certain job to do and shall perform all my pleasure. So whoever this man is, he's going to do God's will, whether he likes it or not, uh, and become God's shepherd or servant. Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. So this story has to be told, and then that message has to be confirmed, and God is going to work through an end-time Cyrus who will do God's will and say to Jerusalem, you'll be built, and to the temple your foundation will be laid. <clears throat> we know Zerubbabel lays <clears throat> the foundation of the temple, Zechariah 4. Uh, of course, Christ ultimately lays it, but uh, he says there that Zerubbabel is going to be the one that he uses 
to establish the end time ladder temple. So, this Cyrus announces it and says it will be done, but he doesn't do it. Zerubbabel and the remnant and Joshua do it, not Cyrus. Just as, if you read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, King Cyrus provided the means, the wherewithal, the treasury, the temple vessels that Babylon had taken. He provided everything that was needed and gave them to Ezra and to Nehemiah, and actually gave them to, to uh, Belteshazzar, wasn't the name that was used in, in uh, Ezra, the referred to as Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel and Joshua were the ones that stood up and did the story that Ezra talks about. The story that Nehemiah talks about was done by Zerubbabel and Joshua. Therefore, God brings them forward in the end time, in Haggai and Zechariah, to do the same job with the remnant of the people to build the temple of God. So there is going to be a Cyrus, a Gentile, someone who does not know God, who will perform a service to God and make sure that it is done. And we will see right here that he will also be given the treasures to be used for God's people. I'm not going to go there uh, into chapter 45 because we're out of time. But with that background, Isaiah 45 will make sense uh, that this story we're reading is going to be done and God will send someone to declare that it shall be done and authorize those whom God authorizes to get the job done. So let's end there for today.